have the, be united and have the, think the same things. It says in Philippians 2. And I thought, what better way to think the same things as a church than to study one book? And so we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. And I would encourage you. I would encourage you to uh, read through it. Uh, you can read through it at least once every week. Um, and uh, just you can meditate on it. You can memorize it. You can just work your way slowly through it. That being said, this Sunday, I'm not actually going to look at the book of Philippians. Um, because uh, I felt like before we spend, you know, the next six weeks and probably longer, um, looking at just one book, it seems reasonable to ask the question, well, why should we care about some book that somebody wrote over 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago? What's the big deal about Paul? What's the big deal about the letter that he wrote? And what's the big deal about scriptures in general? Uh, why do we even consider this to be a sacred book? It's just filled with prophecies that people had. It's filled with history that normal historians wrote down, the stories about their people. And it's filled with, um, you know, the letters that Paul wrote, as well as other things. So I'm going to kind of preach this to somebody that doesn't exist, to a skeptic among us. And I know that you're all here because you believe in scriptures. But I don't think we can ever take for granted that there aren't these sorts of questions in the back of our minds. And when, you know, the questions come and when it's late at night and we ask ourselves, why do I believe anyways? It's good to have a sermon like this tucked in the back of our minds that we can fall back on and say, actually, that is why I believe. There is a reason that I believe scriptures are the word of God. And what I would like to do is kind of tunnel down and to reset the foundation here to say scriptures are the word of God. They do give us life, and here is why. So it might sound kind of weird as I keep speaking about a skeptic or these skeptical sorts of questions, but I don't think it's all that weird because I ask myself these sorts of questions, and I think that some of us do as well in our, in, in our more honest moments. So why should we care about some old book that some old guy wrote thousands of years ago? Well, first of all, we need to admit that this isn't just some old book. This is a book that, the Old Testament at least, is the foundation of the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which together are three-fifths of the five major world religions. Over half of the world's population worships Abraham's God. So it's not just some old book. The Bible is the world's bestseller, always has been, and probably always will. Uh, Christians, Christianity is the largest religion, which comp uh, comprises one-third, 33% of the world's population, which is something like 2.6 billion people. No, sorry, 3.6 billion people. So it's not just some old book. It is the book that has brought life and hope and a future to billions of people around the world. As well, Christianity is responsible. Yes, it's responsible for some negative things in, in our history, but it's also responsible for so many of the good things in Western society, such as the importance and human dignity of every individual, equality of the classes between the working class and the ruling class, equality between men and women, the, the rights of children, the rights of workers, Hospitals for all people, schools for all people, libraries for all peoples. All these things can be traced back. Literacy for all people can all be traced back. 
the abolition of slavery, I could go on and on. Christianity is, or the, the Christian religion has done so much good for Western society and for the world. And so it's not just some old book. It's the book um, that has brought hope and life to, to very many people. Um, we were just reminded a few days ago that uh, the birth of Jesus gives hope to not just Christians, but many, many people throughout our society. And the birth of Jesus is so important that we literally set our calendars by him, as we're going to be reminded tomorrow or the day after, I forget, between the two. Really soon, on uh, New Year's Day, we'll be reminded that it has been 2,019 years since we used to think Jesus was born. He was actually born four years before that, but we won't quibble. Um, so... If you can just imagine that you're, you're lost in the woods. As many of us, are, it gets to New Year's, and now the year comes and goes. We're getting to that age where it's like, wow, what am I doing? What's my life about? What's, what's the big purpose? And it puts us in this kind of meditative mood, like what, what actually am I doing? What's the point of life? And as you're kind of wandering around thinking, what, which direction should I go? Well, here's a path that has brought hope and purpose in life to billions of people before you. So maybe this is a little bit better than just stumbling around and trying to figure it out on your own. Because who are you? Maybe, maybe you should follow something that has worked for others. So somebody might say, a hypothetical skeptical person might say, okay, well maybe I'll dabble in religion a little bit because Jesus is a good teacher I'll sprinkle some of his good teachings on my life, do good to others, the golden rule, and life will work out better for me. I'll just follow some of the teachings of Jesus, mix them in with some things I heard on Oprah, mix them in with some teachings from Buddha, mix them in with some teachings from Islam, and all together I'll kind of figure out my own path. There's at least two really good reasons not to dabble in Christianity. First of all, well, first of all, because Jesus said don't do it. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I told you to do? And Jesus was frustrated with this in his day, with people calling him Lord, but not following his teaching. And I think he's frustrated at it in any day. But also, it doesn't make sense. People, Jesus called himself God. A good teacher does not call himself God, unless he is. But um, let me read from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, in speaking of Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who said he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me quite obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. A great moral teacher wouldn't say that he's God. Jesus said he's God. 
And so that leaves us with a choice. Is, was he right or not? The second reason not to dabble is because you're still just following yourself, aren't you? If you're stumbling around out in the woods, you need to get home before dark, you see a path, you take a few steps down it, and then you, you wander off into the bush again. Well, are you going to follow the path or not? And Augustine rightly said, if you accept the things in the Gospels that you approve and reject the things you don't approve, it's not the Gospels you approve of, but yourself. If you're only taking the things out of the Bible you like and rejecting the rest, you're still just following your own wisdom. And I really like a quote by um, Frank Peretti. He said, if you're looking for truth, don't look within yourself. You're the one that's confused. If you're looking for truth, don't look within yourself. You're the one that's confused. Look outside yourself for something that has worked for other people. And by the way, anybody that has taken any, any serious education knows being old is not a bad thing for a book. If a book has been reprinted once, well, it, it, it sold out of the first printing and it needs to be reprinted again. If you're studying a textbook in a class and the textbook is 50 years old and it's still cutting edge, that was a good book that somebody wrote 50 years ago. And the fact that the Bible continues to be printed and printed and printed and printed, it gives life and hope to so many people, generation after generation, societies, empires have risen and fallen, science has come, all these things have changed and the Bible stays as a source of hope and comfort and direction. Isn't this something worth looking into? So what does Christianity actually teach fundamentally? I want to take a, a turn here now, and now I have notes here because we're going to cover a fair bit of material. Um, some of you have a little paper like this. There's a few larger papers um, for people that, that might want to see it in a larger format. Uh, so you can try and find one of these close to you, hopefully on a chair. Um, and you should start on page number one. On the bottom it says page one and two. Why should I care about man-made religion? And I'm going to talk to you basically about the theological doctrine of revelation. This is very central to Christianity, is the doctrine of revelation. And I'm going to make, that's going to make sense to you in a second. So we could start this off by saying... That if God exists, and if God speaks, then absolute truth exists. Just think about that for a second. I know it's kind of a big theological concept. But if God exists and God speaks, then absolute truth exists. Because the whole big deal with relativism and post-modernity is, look, you have your opinion, I have my opinion. When we look out of our you know, optical nerves at the world, everybody perceives the world slightly differently. So how can we ever know that there is one world out there? We all just have our own perspectives. You have your perspective, I have my perspective. There is no definitive perspective unless there's God. So if God exists and he has a perspective, then truth exists. Truth is what God knows when he looks at the world. But that actually doesn't help us unless we can somehow have access to God's truth. But if God speaks in some way, then those words are able to bring light to our confusion. And now all of a sudden there is a fixed point of reference that we can move ourselves towards. 
If God exists and if God speaks, then absolute truth exists. And relativism blows up and splatters all over the walls because there is no more your opinion versus my opinion. There's also God's opinion. And this is objectivity. And this is what guided us into the scientific revolution was this idea of thinking God's thoughts after him. This is how we were able to move forward in pursuit of truth. So if God exists and if God speaks, how does he speak? Romans 16, 25 to 26 is one of the main references from which we get the doctrine of revelation. Romans 16, 25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. So there's a lot happening here. Paul's in the middle of a theological discourse. But there's two words I want to draw out of this. The one is mystery, and the other is revelation. So a mystery, in theological terms... There's no smoke, there's no mirrors, it's not spooky or scary. It's simply something that you could not know unless somebody told you. That's the theological concept of a mystery. So something as simple as, where was I yesterday at 1.35 p.m. in the afternoon is a mystery to you. It's not a mystery to my wife, but it's a mystery to you. And I could tell you, and that would be revelation. I am now telling you that I was working on this sermon in my office. All right? So that, it's a very simple concept. There's things you can't know unless somebody tells you. You can search all you want, and you can't find the answer to this question. Something that's far more profound is, what am I thinking right now? You might be able to guess. You might be, my wife could probably have a pretty good idea. If I'm talking, you'd probably have a good idea what I'm thinking. But nobody can actually know, Scripture said, nobody can actually know the mind uh, except the spirit which is in a person. And who can know the mind of God except his own spirit? And so there were mysteries hidden, which were God's thoughts, God's ideas, God's plans. And he made them known to us. So how did he make them known? Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Because this is important, right? Creator of all the universe, the only person that has an objective and perfect view of everything. He has ideas and he makes them known. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in the last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God, sp God has spoken in the past. God reveals mysteries, is the, the uh, third blank here. And God speaks through the prophets and through Jesus. God speaks through prophets that wrote the Old Testament. And he spoke in the person of Jesus Christ, who was the one that made the world, through whom he made the world. So where can we today have access to the words of God, these prophets and Jesus? Well, it should be a fairly easy answer. Uh, but in Acts 24, 13 to 35... Jesus explains to two people on the road to Emmaus how he is revealed in the Old Testament in scriptures. 
And of course, the Gospels record the life of Jesus. So it's in reading scriptures that we have access to prophets and to Jesus. So there's some important things to know about scriptures. Scriptures are not, as we read about in Jeremiah 23, it was a little bit of a dark passage, um, but it was talking about human prophecies and human ideas and human imaginations and God's disgust for that and hatred of that. And he said, my prophecy, my words are different than that. So scriptures are not the product of human imagination. Scriptures are not the product of human imagination. And if you think about it, most other things are. Most fictional books are. Most you know, great ideas that we have, that's all the product of somebody somewhere thinking something up. But scriptures are not that. They're not the product of human imagination. They're not, as it says in 2 Peter 1.16, they're not cleverly devised stories. Again, the product of human imagination. But they're, they're not something that somebody came up with. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, for the Gospels at least, there's a lot of good evidence that these are real stories that actually happened. And there's people that have investigated it and said the, the, the cornerstones or, or the basic milestones of these stories are historically verifiable. These things actually happened. Nor are they a matter of one's own interpretation, as we read about in 2 Peter 1.20. And so let's, actually we didn't read that, let's, let's read that now. 2 Peter 1.20-21. 20 to 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Scriptures are not the product of human imagination, they're not cleverly devised stories, and they're not, a pro they're not, how's it put it? They're not a matter of one's interpretation. But what are they? Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And there's these two important elements. It's true that there is a human component to scriptures. And Christians have never denied this. This is as opposed to uh, the writing of the Quran, and Muslims believe that that was dictated directly by God. But we believe that it was humans who were moved by God. So when you're reading Paul, it sounds like Paul's personality. You get to know a lot about Paul's personality, what made him happy, what made him sad, what made him angry. When you're reading the book of John, you get to know John, and you get to know kind of his, his heartbeat. When you read in the Old Testament the book of Deuteronomy, you get to know Moses, and he was kind of mad when he spoke, when he preached Deuteronomy. He was speaking with righteous indignation, and that comes across. And that's normal. These are real human beings who lived at a time and place in history. But they were moved by God. And the Greek word has this, it's the same word that's used uh, when Paul was on a ship and the ship was grabbed by the storm and the wind just moved the ship. That somehow the Holy Spirit moved these people so that in spite of them being human, in spite of them being, you know, normal people otherwise, 
the product was God's word. And God spoke through them so that the word of God is perfect, making wise the simple. So God speaks through scriptures. And they're not the product of human imagination. They're not just stories. They're not just interpretations. God used people to write his word. So the next question we need to ask is, did Paul think he was speaking from God? And my answer to that is yes, because he called himself an apostle, which means messenger from God. In 1 Timothy 4.1, he said explicitly that he spoke from God, as well as in other passages he said that. And he wanted his letters to be circulated and read by the other churches. He wanted his letters to be used uh, to instruct others. Did the original apostles, other than Paul, think that he wrote scriptures? In 2 Peter 3.16, as we read this morning, Peter said that Paul has written other things in his letters and unwise people distort them as they do with other scriptures. So Peter, you know, and Jesus said, you are Peter on this rock, I build my church. He was the leader of the apostles and he validated Paul's writings as scriptures, putting them right alongside of the other scriptures. And the early church from the earliest days um, used Paul's writings right alongside of scriptures, right alongside of the Old Testament as scriptures. Um, there was a, a sermon that went out uh, by, forget his name, but maybe it doesn't matter, um, a fairly popular, I think he was, I don't want to get this wrong, Andy Stanley put out a sermon, uh, and it was the Je- he called it the Jesus Told Me Sermon. And he said that before the Council of Nicaea, the church had no scriptures. And so when it says that uh, it seemed right to the Holy Spirit and to us in Acts, he said that's basically how the early church functioned. They just, whatever seemed right to the Holy Spirit is what they did. And as somebody who wrote a master's thesis in the early church, I have to tell you that the early church had scriptures. And I have uh, the early church, the, all the church fathers that wrote before the Council of Nicaea, they're called the Anti-Nicene Church Fathers, and it takes up about that much room on the shelf. And a good eighth of each book is their biblical references, like because they keep, keep track at the end of the book, the end notes. And for every point, they're using scriptures to back up their beliefs. They're saying, the Bible told me so, the Bible told me so, the Bible told me so. They're anchoring their beliefs in the writings of scriptures. And they're using Paul, and they're using Mark, and they're using Matthew, because there has never been a time that the church has not had Paul and the four Gospels as their scriptures alongside the Old Testament. So it is true that there has been, um, there was a long process of figuring out exactly which books belonged in the New Testament. There were some books that people wanted to add in, such as the writings of um, Papias and Shepherd of Hermas and some books that you've never heard of. Uh, not the Gnostic Gospels, they were never considered, if you've watched the Da Vinci Code. Anyways, uh, that's nonsense. The Gnostic Gospels were never considered, but there were some good writings, some good books written by good Christian people that people said, well, really should they be considered? But finally it came down to anything that wasn't written by the first generation of Christians is not considered, and so those things were excluded. And some things were excluded early on, such as the book of Hebrews, because there was no title. Nobody knew who wrote it. But eventually they said, look, it clearly came from the first generation and the whole church uses it and it fits with the things that we know apostles wrote. So books like Hebrews and Revelation was another book that kind of got put in later on. So that sounds confusing and, and destabilizing. Why did it take so long to figure out some of the fine details of the New Testament? 
But what's important to know is that the four Gospels and Paul were always the scriptures of the church. There was never a time when the church did not have these four Gospels and Paul. From the, from the very first writers, from Ignatius and, and from Clement of Rome, they were using these books. So I know that's a little bit more confusing, but we're in a time and an age when people are throwing these sorts of objections at Christianity, and we need to know that uh, would actually happen in history. So that dovetails into my next question. What does science say about scriptures? So obviously we could have a whole big sermon on science. But I do just want to, in the spirit of being prepared for people that ask questions, uh, Second Peter, Peter uh, somewhere in Peter it says, uh, be ready for anyone that asks you for an a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be ready to give people answers. So the Christian religion has been subjected to a lot of investigation over the last 150 years or so. And secular academia has firmly established the milestones of Jesus' life are absolutely beyond any dispute. As I've mentioned before, I think, he was definitely born around 4 to 5 B.C., he was definitely baptized by John the Baptist around 30 A.D. And he definitely, definitely died on a Roman cross around 30 or 33 A.D. These things are not contested. They're not debated. Jesus lived. Paul lived, born about the same time as Jesus, converted to Christianity at around 31 to 36 A.D., uh, led and taught the early church, uh, wrote between 50 to 63 about A.D., and he died under Nero, the... the um, Emperor Nero in 62 to 64 AD. People have studied the text of scripture uh, and they've also discovered new texts that are older and older than what we had before. Um, and they have come up with a, a more accurate text of scriptures. That might sound kind of weird, but we have what's called the Textus Recepticus, the received text, and then the, the text that we found through archeology. span And the one through archeology span they say is more accurate. It's closer to the original because we want to get back to what, Jesus, what God inspired originally because God moved human people to speak, right? We want to get back to that text, the one that was written originally in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. And so through science, we're able to get closer to that text. So you might say, well, how can I get my hands on this text that's closer to the original? If you have a Bible today, you're holding it in your hands. Uh, there were some very minor changes that people noticed in the, as they looked at archaeology and they looked at the King James Bible. If you're curious about history, you can look at the King James Bible and compare it to uh, the Bible you have in front of you. There's some, some minor things that were, that were improved, but it's, there is no controversy, there is no problem, there's nothing hidden, and we have before us the best possible New Testament that we could have. Science, as it has been applied to Christianity, has not made it flounder. It has made it more pure and stronger. And that might be raising a lot of questions for you. Feel free to ask me questions afterwards about this. But the bottom line is that God speaks through people. And we have an incredibly uh, clear uh, record and representation of what he has said in scriptures. And in reading scriptures, we can hear the very words of God. And this is why we read scriptures, is to hear the word of God, to find hope and future for our lives. So that leads to some very strong questions. As we talk about God spoke to me, as we say, 
the words of God are what I build my life on. As we say something like, absolute truth exists. That makes people nervous today, doesn't it? To say things like that. They're going to say something like, well, doesn't that make you a fundamentalist? Aren't you some crazy um, religious nut? And so I want to address these two questions uh, towards the end of our time, and I do want to spend a good amount of time on them. So doesn't religious fundamentalism, or what I'm talking about here, the words of God speaking to us, doesn't this lead to religious violence? It's a question in our day and age that we need to answer. Fundamentally, well, the word fundamentalism means going back to the basics. And so it depends on what you're being fundamentalist about, right? Nobody's afraid of fundamentalist Buddhists, especially. Fundamentalism usually means going back to the founder, back to the holy book, and back to the early history of a religion. And this is why when people talk about being fundamentalist Muslims and going back to the Quran and going back to Muhammad and back to the early days of Islam, there's cause for concern, right? And it's not a sermon about Islam, but you know what I'm talking about. But when we return to Jesus and return to the Bible and return to the early church, it's a return to peace, to the ethic of love, to respect for all human life and a separation between church and state, because that's what the early church was. The early church was pacifistic. The early church was not involved in government. The early church laid down their life instead of taking other people's lives. And the time when the church was most, was military, between 1095 up to 1613, I believe, this was the time when the church was furthest away from its roots. The Bible was not translated into the, into the language of the people. The, most Christians had a very nominal affiliation with Christianity. And yes, there was a lot of violence, and, and there's a whole historical reason for that. But as, Christ, as the Bible was translated back into the language of the people, people got back to the Bible, back to basics. That's when we had the Reformation. That's when we had the, um, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. That's when we had all these human rights coming in, when people started reading scriptures, that man and woman are made in the image of God that um, there are basic human rights that we need to get back to and defend and uh, safeguard. So it depends what you're being fundamentalist about. And scriptures, the Bible, the Christian scriptures, are a book that has brought tremendous life to our society. So what about, doesn't fundamentalism lead to arrogance and to ignorance and to this know-it-all attitude? Well, God told me, so... Whatever you say doesn't count because just me and and God, as I was reading scriptures this morning, God told me this, and you can't argue with me because God said. So doesn't it lead to this arrogant, ignorant, kind of closed-mindedness? I just want to say, yes, it can. Okay, there is a reason that people are concerned about this because most of us, as I say say that, you're thinking of somebody, right? It, It happens, see some smiles. Don't say the name. You can pray about them later during our prayer time. Um, so there's a few points that we need to remember. I have been that person, okay? Like, let's just be honest. We need to be aware of this danger, okay? So there's a few points to keep in mind. We do want to know God's mind through scriptures. And this is a path that leads towards life. Scriptures are perfect, but not exhaustive. Scriptures are perfect, but not exhaustive. Exhaustive means they touch everything. 
Okay, most of us in this room know how to multiply. Then you know the multiplication table. None of us learned it from scriptures. Okay? Most of us know about the periodic table. None of us learned it from scriptures. Okay, there's things that you can know that aren't contained in scriptures. And sometimes we get this idea that if I know everything there is to know about scriptures, first of all, you can't. But if I, if I become an expert in scriptures, I'll become an expert in everything. And that's not true. There's things you can know that aren't contained in scriptures. And so even the, the world's leading Bible scholar needs to be humble as they go into science or as they go into chemistry or as they go into other fields. Okay? Scriptures are perfect but not exhaustive. And they weren't meant to be. Jesus said, there's other things I would like to share with you, but I can't because you can't receive them right now. So Jesus himself says there's a limit. And the end of the book of John said if... Well, anyways, there, there's other ways I could prove that. But scriptures are not exhaustive. God also reveals himself through nature. And we read about this in Romans 1, 20 to 21. Because 19 and to 21, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So there's things that we can know about God, God's eternal nature, his wisdom, his power. You can learn certain things about God by looking at nature. And this is what theologians have called general revelation. God reveals himself. Remember what we talked about with mystery and revelation. There's things about God that God reveals to us through creation. And as you take a walk out in, in nature and you see you know, the beauty and the majesty of creation, you can say, wow, the person that made this was really smart. He had an appreciation for aesthetics and beauty. There, there's things you can know about God through general revelation. Uh, scriptures and Jesus are called special revelation. This is where we get the, the fine print, the details, the, the specifics about God. But you can also know things generally about God through nature. And this opens the door for philosophy and for science and for medicine and for art. There is space for people to just study nature and to become smart in those domains and for Christians to then learn from these other people. And that's totally appropriate. When there's a conflict between the two, we say, well, special revelation trumps general revelation. But when there's a really strong conflict, sometimes we need to go back and say, did I read this right? Or is this perhaps just how I interpreted it? For example, there's the famous Copernician revolution. And does the earth go around the sun or the sun go around the earth? Um, there's a time for Christians to learn from, from nature and to reevaluate what they thought they knew about uh, the world. Scriptures are, this is a really important point, especially for us Protestants. Scriptures are meant to be read in community. Scriptures are meant to be read in community. Uh, last Sunday I preached uh, at Sawyerville Church uh, nearby here on the priesthood of all believers. And I really emphasize that we are all priests. Each one of us is a priest. Each one of us has access to God. We don't need an intermediary because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that you're supposed to just go home, open your Bible, and just you and Jesus are going to figure everything out. Scriptures are, are 
given to the community and they're meant to be read in community and we're supposed to be a family. And that safeguards us from some of the extremes that we might otherwise fall into. God gives the Holy Spirit in community. When I was in Bible school, uh, my Bible professor challenged the whole class, find me one Bible reference in which the Holy Spirit is given to one individual. Find me a place in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is given to one individual. And all of us theologians got out our Bibles and said, what about this verse, what about this verse, what about this verse? And he got out his Greek text and said, that's plural, that's plural, that's plural, that's plural, that's plural. And it doesn't come up in English because you is you. We don't know if it's you or if it's you, right? And it's more clear in French and it was certainly more clear in Greek that when the Holy Spirit is given, it's given to a community. And yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus and that is so important to safeguard that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I personally am a son of God and I'm in a family with other sons and daughters of God and together we make up the body of Christ. And this safeguards us. One important thing is that teaching is to happen in community. And part of that is there's some oversight. It's not just anybody that teaches. There's a whole, you know, first I put 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. There's, there's rules for how you put somebody into leadership, into a teaching position. Because character matters. Proven track record matters. Um, and when you don't have that oversight, then the teaching can go into a strange direction. As well, community is a safeguard against strange, private, extreme interpretations. And this is how cults get formed, really. is one person that is closed off to all other insights, takes his Bible, and says, I'm the only one that can interpret this, and he goes off in some weird direction, and he won't listen to anybody else, and it destroys people. It's, it's a d dangerous thing. And community is meant to be a safeguard against that. So it's, it's important to, scriptures are meant to be read in community. As well, some things in scriptures are more and less important and more and less clear. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be kind of like, what? Less, some things are less important in scriptures? Well, look at the Bible verses I, I put. Peter himself admits that some things in scriptures are hard to understand. So if Peter, the apostle Peter, had a hard time understanding some things in scriptures, who are you to say you got it all figured out? Honestly, like who am I to say I've got it all figured out? There's some things that are hard to understand in scriptures. There's some things that are crystal clear. And there's some things that are more important, some things that are less important. Both Paul and Jesus made this distinction. You can look up the passages later. John 16, 12. Jesus said, there's things I would like to tell you, but I don't have time. You're not able to receive them. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, I deliver to you as of first importance. You know, he talks about Jesus' death and, and, and resurrection on our behalf. There's some things that are extremely important. There's some things that are less important. And Paul talks on four different occasions about the danger of causing division over minor points of doctrine, over disputes, over words, over genealogies. And he says, reject a factitious man after a first and second warning. There's this tendency to make everything into a major, a big deal. And not everything is a big deal. There's some things in scriptures that are important, but they're not essential. And so we need to be able to be united on the essential things. And those are contained in the Apostles' Creed. 
and the Nicene Creed that Jesus is the Son of God who died for us, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. But there's things that are less important. How exactly the end times is going to work out. Um, I could go on and on, but I don't want to not want to start a controversy about what I think is minor, because even the, di the discussion about what is major and minor can become a contentious issue. But there are things that are less important, and we ought to not cause division over that. So you might say after all this, well, doesn't this just lead us back to relativism? We're reading scriptures in community. Some things are less important. Some things are more important. Can't we just say, well, your understanding of scriptures is that and mine is that? Well, no, it doesn't. Because there's a life-saving message in scriptures. God spoke through the prophets, through the apostles, through Jesus. God spoke to us. And there is a message there for us to understand. And we can agree on the essentials while we disagree on the non-essentials. Just to tie this together with an illustration, just imagine that I sent two of my boys upstairs to go clean their room. And on their way up, one of the boys says, well, I think dad wants us to wash the windows and, and to, to clean the floors. And the other kid says, well, I think he just wants us to make our beds and pick up all the toys. And they have this debate on the way up the stairs. And the more they talk, the more angry they get until there's a full-blown full argument going on. They get their other siblings involved and everybody's divided. And there's these two factions, the, the, the window washers versus the floor cleaners. And I come up after half an hour. Everybody's mad. Everybody's in tears. Nothing's been clean. And I say, did you clean your room? And my one son says to me, I know exactly what you mean when you say that. It means that you mean to clean the walls or the windows. And the other son says, no, it means to clean up the floor. I would say, did you do either? And sometimes this is what Christianity can become. I know exactly what God means when he says this. Well, did you do it? Did you do it? Because what it comes down to, what the central core of the message for us, which um, we, I've got it right before us, right here. What is the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we might disagree on some of the non-essential things. And Paul has a model for how to agree in love, disagree, agree to disagree in love in Romans 14. We can disagree on some of the non-essentials, but we agree on the essential, the heart of it, that we need to love people. We need to love God and we need to love people. And James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled in the sight of God is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is the path that gives us life. This is the path that gives us life. And so starting next week, we're going to look at the book of Philippians. And we're going to get dig deep. And we're going to look at the historical context. And we're going to look at who Paul was. We're going to look at who the Philippians were. Because we want to know what was the, the historical situation that caused this letter to happen. Because all of that is relevant. God, men moved by God spoke scriptures. And those scriptures can give us life and direction in our, in our journey. So I'd like to pray and then we'll continue with the service. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that... You have revealed mysteries to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, these words are life and these words are hope and these words can show us a path and propel us forwards. 
And thank you, Jesus, that um, because you spoke, it's not just your opinion, one person's opinion versus another, but God's opinion comes, and we can have a direction in our lives. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.